Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Politics in the Pulpit, a lectionary-based preaching resource designed to ask the provocative questions of whether and how politics could appear in our preaching this week. My name is Jackie Embry. I'm a newly retired United Reformed Church minister. I've worked with churches across Birmingham and Bolton and Salford, and as moderator of the United Reformed Church's Mersey Synod. I'm now living in Kendall on the edge of the Lake District. Each week in this new term of podcasts, I'll be joined by a different guest. And today I'm pleased to introduce Professor Alison Phillips, OBE. Alison is UNESCO Chair for Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts and Professor of Languages and Intercultural Studies at the University of Glasgow. She is Ambassador for the Scottish Refugee Council and a member of Bayona community. So welcome, Alison. Thank you. Some of the headlines that reflect our context today are that parts of the UK are still experiencing flooding from Storm Henk, which hit over a week ago. Strikes in the NHS end today after a six-week, six-day walkout from junior doctors. The Israel-Gaza conflict continues with enormous loss of Palestinian lives. The Russia-Ukraine war continues with Kharkiv and Pokrovsk being hit by Russian missile attacks over the weekend. An Islamic State attack last Wednesday in Kerman, southern Iran, has caused over 80 deaths. And in space news, the Peregrine 1 Vulcan rocket has left Florida, Florida this morning, heading for the moon. And India's solar mission, Aditya L1, has reached the sun's orbit. And good news for African elephants, as the population stabilises in the southern heartlands of Africa. We're currently in the church season of Epiphany, and it's Human Trafficking Awareness Day this week on the 11th of January. And next week on the 18th, the week of prayer for Christian unity begins. The lectionary readings for Sunday the 14th of January are 1 Samuel 3, 1 to 10, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, Psalm 139, 1 to 6 and 13 to 18, and John 1, 43 to 51. And I guess, Alison, that perhaps the first thing to ask is how you respond when um, asked whether politics should be in the pulpit. Um, I find that question when it's raised really quite um, troubling because I understand that the whole of life and the whole of our lives are political. And so that um, a decision not to speak about what's happening in social life or in political life or what decision makers are doing in the world is in and of itself a political decision. So that when people are not preaching on these, these topics and referring them to everyday life and only looking inwardly, then that is in and of itself a political act. So I um I, I almost see it as a non-question. I think, you know, we we are political beings. God made us to be political beings. And that is how we have been knit together in the womb, as um, Psalm 139 says in this week's selectionary reading. And that knitting is a political knitting. Um, and the politics of the politics of reproduction, the politics of birth. Those all are part of our incarnated beings. And so I, I can't understand how 
politics might not have a place in the pulpit. I suppose I'm also really, as a member of the Iona community, um, we live by various quotes of um, George MacLeod, who was our founder in the 1930s. Um, and he, he, he spoke about being taken outside holiness in preaching to where soldiers curse and nations clash at the crossroads of the world. And so I think, you know, we often think of the pulpit as this, you know, strange architectural box above the people where a man will speak down to people. And obviously much of that has been unraveled. But I have to say that some of the most extraordinary um, preaching that I've heard has been heard, yes, from that, that box, um, uh, as from Munter Isaac in his preaching on the 23rd of December in his Christ um, in the Rubble sermon. Um, but also I've heard the most extraordinary preaching on mountaintops and shorelines, in marketplaces, in shantytowns, in refugee camps. And so I see the places where we might place ourselves to speak the word of God and to let it be the fire in our bones that Jeremiah speaks of um, as, as also being quite political statements about the place of the word of God in amongst us. So where would you start with this week's readings? <laughs> um, so I, um, I have to say, uh, uh, as we, we enter this new year, I'd very much hoped I'd be able to start with these readings as a, a place of peace, um, a place where justice um, has come, a place where the reflections over Christmas and the 12 days of our Christmas, obviously mindful that the 12 days of the Orthodox Christmas were beginning on the 7th of January. So yesterday, as we're recording this, that, that some are in a season of Christmas at the moment, but this amazing time of feasting and reflection and meditation after this long time of waiting might have brought a deeper peace and the justice that brings a sustainable peace to places like Ukraine and places like Sudan, um, to the strife that is ongoing in Iran and Iraq and in Syria. And for me, most particularly on my heart, um, within the Horn of Africa and in the Gaza Strip and the occupied Palestinian territories and occupied East Jerusalem. Um, so I cannot not read these texts without hearing the words of colleagues of 15 years and friends who live and work in the Gaza Strip. I have many projects that have endured that are peace building projects in the Gaza Strip. And so that's really where I, 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 I would start. And, um, and, and the, the first line that really jumped out at me, um, Jackie, was the line in um, the text from Samuel, which is the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. And, and that's, that has really um, settled with me as I've been preparing for this, this conversation. The lamp of God had not yet gone out because it feels very dark. Um, every single day I'm receiving messages by WhatsApp um, and Facebook Messenger and, and other forms of social media from my friends and colleagues of many years in Gaza. And each one is um, really their last words because they do not believe that they will survive. 
and my accompaniment of them is palliative. It is the work of trying to alleviate the suffering of a dying people because they know that everybody is a target and that no place is safe. And there is a great deal of despair. And yet what I see in the gracious messages from my friends and colleagues, um, some are Christian, some are Muslim, um, is a graciousness and a care with language. And so every message that I receive is in and of itself a blessing and a prayer. And this is an extraordinary, rarely humbling place to be, but it has meant that I have come to really believe that even in the very worst of times, the lamp of God has not yet gone out. Um, and I might read just one of the messages from one of my colleagues of, of 15 years. He said, may your God, Allah, grant you health, strength and blessings. And I send special cross-border multicultural appreciation to you and to all our great, great friends in peacemaking. And it's those messages of greeting. Rowan Williams speaks about neighbor, neighborliness as being um, the greeting, meeting and eating that we do with our neighbors, um, even when we're separated from one another. And so for me, the lamp of God had not yet gone out is present in these messages that I'm receiving. It's present also in the, the acts of courage of journalists in Palestine. Obviously no Western media is able to get in. There's no in independent investigation, but the people who are there saying, here I am, you called me, this witnessing that journalists are doing um, on social media and in the press, um, including um, Wahel, the um, Al Jazeera correspondent for Gaza, who has lost so many members of his family, who yesterday lost his eldest son and was standing on air saying, here I am. And what I heard in his language of humanity against the killing is that the lamp of God had not yet gone out. So that's where I started in that place of hope that I take as a strength from the Palestinian people. Um, and where what I want to say back to my colleagues is speak for your servants are listening. And that this is about a neighborliness between us as we try and bear witness to what is unbearable and to what um, is an abomination. It is a breaking of the covenant in the Ten Commandments, the killing of our neighbors. It is um, a, a breaking of love against neighbor. And, and therefore, how do we find a place to say the lamp of God has not gone out? How do we sustain a witness, an active witness that says, here I am, you called me? How do we say, speak to people who will say things to us that are impossible to hear or impossible to see? the killing of children, um, the atrocities that we're witnessing in Israel and Palestine, as, as well as in other parts of the world from less studied crimes. And I think here, particularly the 8 million displaced in Sudan, how might we have the courage um, in the UK to say, speak for your servant is listening. Yeah, I mean, that's that's brilliant. Would you, would you contrast the way Eli's eyes have grown dim with the lamp still being lit? Jackie, that's such a good question. And I do, I, I was thinking about that. The, the, the verse in my head it has been, my eyes are dim with weeping and my pillow soaked with tears. Faithful God, remember me. Um, from um, 
yeah, from the Psalms, but also that that it's one of the wild goose um, repetitions of of a, of a song that we might sing in these times. And there's something about becoming inured to the suffering, and this is a normal thing that happens as we um, sit with war and destruction, as we live through um, yet another um, crisis of humanity that produces displacement of human beings. Obviously, this is not a, a refugee crisis at the moment because there's no spilling over into over international borders. Um, would that there were because lives would be saved. But that in this, it's easy to become used to it or to think you know it or to have seen it. And I think that dimness is maybe what um, what is there in Eli and might be there in us. And there's a work to be done that is that, that work that comes in the voice of a young boy, this boy who is in foster care, essentially, in the temple, you know, Samuel given by Hannah, in this, this child born in an, in a, to the barren in this extraordinary way, the, the, this way that prefigures the birth of Christ, prefigures the fostering of Joseph as Jesus's father, um, but the way in which, you know, it's so easy for those of us who are older, who are parents, to somehow be dim uh, to, to looking on this. So I think that is such a good question, Jackie. And, you know, the question there is, how do we stay alive to the cries of the suffering and to the children, to the voices of the children? And Jesus, who says, you know, suffer the little children to come to me, listen to them. What are they saying? And of course, that testimony and the suffering and the crying is is acute. Yeah. I mean, one of the words you've used a lot there is is humanity. And I wonder if that would bring you on to to Psalm 139. Um, yes, and also I, I think to um, the, the the text in 1 Corinthians, which is a text obviously about our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit, our humanity breathing out the Holy Spirit. And again, looking at that particular text, I was really struck by the words of, of my colleague Hiab Johannes, um, um, and his 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 blogs are, are extraordinary pieces of writing. Um, he is a survivor of of human trafficking, and a survivor of torture, and has written very movingly in his academic work about his experiences. But he has also written saying that my home is my body, and whilst my body has been tortured, and my body has been trafficked, and my body has been abused, and my body has been wrongfully imprisoned, and my body has been moved across borders and held ransom, uh, still it is my temple and my home. And I find that immensely profound um, and, and in the context also of work that I do with women who have survived gender-based violence, who are still able to say, my body, you may have abused it, you may have broken it, but it, it is, a, it is a, a temple, you may have violated my temple, but that does not stop me saying that even though the veil of the temple is rent in two, still on the third day, after a period of rest and quiet, still, in those words of Maya Angelou's poem, still I rise. And I hear, obviously, the words of the risen Christ in that poem of Maya Angelou's, but also the rising of the body of the temple. And I see it in those who 
commit to the work of healing of themselves and of others. I see it in the witness of those people um, who are really offering up almost um, what in Psalm 139, I, I almost want to, to um, dub God's anti-trafficking vision, um, God's vision for everyone's body to be a temple of the Holy Spirit, um, for everyone to know that, that the temple is the holy place that is searched and found as God searches for Samuel and finds him despite the dimness of the decision makers and the temple holders and the organizers of worship, despite all of those feasts, which sometimes God says, I see and I despise, despite that, God says, I sit and I know you from afar and that before a word is on my tongue you lord know it completely and i really think about the fact that it takes a long time for people who've been abused to come into language um i i once wrote a piece jackie about the rape of tamar um and that very very difficult text that text which phyllis tribal has called the text of terror um and one where we read against the grain and that in my experience of listening to the testimony of women who have been raped and women who've been sexually violated, that I realize that often when people come to speak of that, it's not the first time, that the first time of a telling is small and quiet and intimate and messy. Um, it's often comes because of a triggering that makes something suddenly obvious. Um, and I've sat with, with women um, mostly women, sometimes men, in my office, where suddenly it pours out. Now, that's not the public telling, but that's the first telling. That's the rehearsed telling. And that's where, before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. And then the words are on the tongue. Um, and they come out because everyone is created in their innermost being. Um, because we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, and that in these places, these secret places of abuse, um, where no judgment is easily possible, there is something of a mercy and a comfort in these words, in God's anti-trafficking wisdom, in the wisdom that says, despite what has been done to you, despite the greatest of abominations, and I see this also in these, these images of children, you know, the, the thousands of amputees that we see in the Gaza Strip. You know, there are eight, eight million displaced in Sudan at the moment. Um, that in these people, there is a God who sits and perceives thoughts from afar, who is also there in that deep intimacy of the going out of the lying down that there is a god whose knowledge is too wonderful for us and and in that i think also again of my colleague here and of his commitment to healing and the way he says that as we commit to the work of healing as we say we won't be bound by necropolitics by a politics of death we will 
commit ourselves to a politics of life. And as he finds the places that are beautiful and life-giving and which are almost about a commitment to say, yes, God, I know that your eyes have seen my unformed body, the body that's been unformed or deformed in these ways, that despite that, there is a healing that is possible. And it is, that is found in words of comfort and music, in words of the Psalms, in illustrations and pictures, in laughter, in comedy, um, and in those things that Walter Brueggemann speaks about, where he talks about unbearable, unbearable pain and what can be done to change it. And he speaks about this in his book, Texts That Linger, Words That Explode, in his sections on liturgies of resistance. And I, I turn to this on many an occasion um, and around texts like this. Um, and he says that there are three things that are necessary, the public expression of pain. And I see that you know, very much in, in um, the Corinthians text that we have. That, this is a public expression of pain. Um, but also in John's, um, sorry, in, in, in the, sorry, the gospel from, from John, where Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel and he decides to leave Galilee. We don't know why, but here we have a Palestinian um, uh, 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 living under occupation in the Galilee um, who decides to move and we don't know why and, and then finds people, Philip and Nathaniel and draws hope from Nathaniel here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit and what that means to be amongst good people who don't lie what it means for us today to not be around propaganda to be able to curate our social media around people who are telling the truth and who are speaking truth to power. And for me this week, I've really thought of this in the context of the application of South Africa um, to institute proceedings with regard to the genocide convention against Israel. And I've really heard that here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Um, because what I see South Africa doing in this act is saying, as a party to the Genocide Convention, as is the UK since the 30th of January 1970, we are bound by international law to discharge our obligation to prevent genocide and to raise alerts with the International um, Court of Justice if we believe there is a risk that genocide could be committed. So we're not saying here that we know yet that genocide is being committed. That will be a decision taken by 15 judges in the International Criminal Court in hearings on Thursday and Friday this week. But we are here to say, here are people who are telling a truth that is important and weighty for our common humanity. And th that... Jesus, you know, in, in speaking to Nathaniel and saying, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you, you know, this gathering of this motley crew of weird and wonderful people who we wouldn't have expected to find ourselves in the company of, um, really, to me, is very like the company I find myself in. Um, I find myself surrounded at this moment of action by people who I wouldn't have expected to find myself in, you know, by, um, by, by, by Israelis, by South Africans, by um, Eritreans, 
by international um, human rights lawyers, um, all reaching out who I might never have met before, but who are saying, look, I've seen you, I've seen what you're doing, or where I'm saying, I've seen you, I've seen what you're doing. And I'm realizing that that, in that, we see the gospel come alive. That is what Jesus says, I see you. I see what you're doing. I see a truth that you're speaking. I see you thinking under a fig tree. I see you speaking. I see you. And that that is part of maybe our task in this is to, to see again, to let the dimness leave our eyes that Samuel um, is able to do with Eli in the temple and to be people who see and see because when we see heaven opens and the angels of God are ascending and descending on the son of man amen and I mean obviously part of that text is about calling um how did you come into your calling because that seems to me to be very clear in what you're saying that that you've got a very strong calling yeah, that's a really good question, Jackie. Um, I um, th there's a Kenyan liturgy that we used a lot in my my former church, an, an Anglican church, and one of the phrases that we have is we invoke um, uh, God uh, to come in as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, um, is God of the ancestors. Um, and so part of my calling comes from the God of my ancestors. And I think of my grandparents in this um, and my grandfather, who was a member of the United Reformed Church, you know, like yourself. And I, I grew up in, in uh, going to his church and with his witness, with my grandmother. Um, he was one of the first people to receive the um, migrants coming over from the Indian subcontinent to work in the cotton mills in Blackburn, Lancashire. And he was often the first person they met because he was the personnel officer for British Northrop, the factory that made looms in Blackburn, Lancashire. And he was just moved by these people who were often without their family. They were separated from their families back home. Um, he was moved by the plight of people in an area of the world which was beset by conflict. And so he invited people for Sunday lunch and they made Sunday lunch and that was what they did. And I often think I'd, you know, if I could go back to a period, a point in history and be a fly on the wall, I would love to have seen some of those dinners that they had together. You know, what was it like for somebody who just arrived fresh off the boat, as they say, to have, you know, Yorkshire pudding and roast beef with my grandparents. Um, you know, when my, my grandfather died, he you know, there were members of the community who had come over, second, third generation, who lined the root of his coffin as it went. And it was deeply moving to see that. And I think I was just brought up as a young girl in that tradition of hospitality, that tradition of being a good guest or a good host. Um, and so I've worked within that all my life. I, I studied German because I really wanted to understand the Holocaust and understand what it meant to... Um, be remaking a country where after the displacement of a third of your own population has happened after the Holocaust. Um, and then I became involved in, in work with refugees um, in Glasgow. I visited Dungaval Removal Centre for many years. I got involved in a circle to enable bail 
for refugees and then began to take people into my own home, as many, many people have done for Ukraine um, and also with Syria. But you know, this was about 10 years before that became a more normalized routine thing for people to be doing um, within the churches in particular and within faith communities. So it's a, a group of maybe five of us in the city of Glasgow volunteering through a charity to open a home to destitute asylum seekers and 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 we um, basically became aunts and uncles and and surrogate grandparents to to many people through that that process but also came to foster a young Eritrean um uh, to whom we're now parents and foster grandparents um and so through that I've really just lived lived this um and seen you know those words on the road to Emmaus that you know, the the gospel comes alive when you're in extremists, when you're forced to flee, when you're on a road somewhere else because you don't know what else to do with yourself, when it's no longer safe and safe in the centres of power, when you need to be amongst people, when you find people on the road in, in the way that, you know, Jesus calls Nathaniel and Philip. And it's a bit like that in the, the Strangers on the Road to Emmaus as well. There's a, a finding of people, a seeing of people, and knowing you can have these conversations safely. And I think that's really been how I've then found the Gospels come alive to me and the place where my preaching, that that fire in my bones comes from as a layperson to, to speak of the, the justice of 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 what is needed in the world to to make peace between us. Yeah. I want to give you an opportunity to to say anything that you think we've missed out um before we before we close. Um I think there's just one final thing that I think's really struck me from um particularly um, the gospel text from John, but also from the psalm, um, um, which is the place of of nature um, in 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 the in the text. You know, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree. Um, the presence of nature, the way that you know, it's the fig tree that that preaches. Um, it's the way that it is you know, the mountains and the trees that clap their hands, you know, maybe um, in praise and hallelujah, but maybe to say, hey, pay attention here, look, listen, you know, drop those scales off your eyes, um, you know, begin to speak again, there's something important here. And I think there's something that we often miss out here about the way that nature preaches to us. You know, obviously, St. Francis knew this, um, you know, he preached to the birds because they preached to him. Um, and I think for me in this work, the thing that I cannot miss out, the place that is restorative, but also that I, I see from my colleague Kiab and from many of those that I live with is that nature is a place of restoration and healing. Nature is where we find a way of doing restorative, integrating, reintegrating work after we've been broken into our thousand pieces. Um and so I find that I'm really these days advocating for a almost a, a permaculture theology of homiletics, of preaching, um, that what we might do is really integrate our human, very frail human acts of preaching into this wider context of the environment of nature preaching with us. And that in a way, um, 
when we have that line, the lamp of God had not gone out, you know, that is also nature preaching to us. We as humans, if we burn with a flame, non-metaphorically, it means we're in grave risk of death. But we can look at a candle, which can be this, this flame of great danger and take great solace from it. And we can know it for its danger in a blast of a bomb, but we can also say, here is a lamp, here is a lamp, and that lamps in darkness are so important, but that that light, that elemental fire that comes from the sun, that can be made by rubbing two sticks together from nature, these are ways of bringing that light that are gifts of God to us in the wider creation. So I think that role of creation uh, and, and nature in providing a place for us to rest and think, but also for us to be preached to. And maybe those are also ways in which we need to undim our eyes and listen in new ways to the ways that nature is preaching to us and gifting us something. And that, you know, in, I think it's the book of Joshua, you know, there, there is, you know, the ravaging of the land after Israel crosses into the promised land, you know, that all those ways in which, we see covenant broken with, with the land uh, and annihilation of the people um, who lived on that land and that what is promised land for one is Nakba for another. And I think, you know, listening to the land, what the land is saying, what the destruction is. My my friend in, in Gaza on during the ceasefire, that, that brief period of ceasefire, said to me that what he did was go out and harvest the olives so that they could press the oil and they stood in queue for 24 hours to do that uh, that they might give that oil away to all the displaced people who are living with them and living in the area where he lives in the refugee camp where he lives um, in 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 the gaza strip and on christmas day he wrote to me and he said today we have been out and we have pruned the date trees and the date trees are in the the, the area called Dairabella, which means the house of the dates um, which is one of the central areas of gaza and he's a date farmer um and he went to prune the dates and i i think i think it was martin luther who said in answer to the question you know if the world is ending tomorrow what should i do today and he said plant trees um, and so, you know, one of my acts in this season is to is to plan for planting, uh, planting my potatoes, for pruning my trees um, in this season of winter, this hard season of winter, um, so that there might be fruit and so that we might be um, we might stay in the vine and bear much fruit, um, because for me, I am really moved and humbled by the actions of people who are facing death on a daily basis, who are caring for the land um, as part of the great book of creation. Well, can I just say thank you very much, Alison, for sharing. It has been a real privilege to listen to you. Um, thank and you. thanks to the rest of you for joining us. Um, to ask whether or how we should preach politics in the pulpit this week. And I suspect many of you will be after today. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode with your friends. And we also have online spaces for further engagement and discussion about faith and politics on X or Twitter. 
at pulpit underscore politics or using hashtag politics in the pulpit. And we have a Facebook group, which you can access through the Joint Public Issues Team's Facebook page and the website jpit, that's J-P-I-T dot U-K. So let's go into both our politics and our pulpits with a prayer. This prayer is from the United Reformed Church's Worship Notes for the 14th of January by the Reverend Janet Tollington. Let's pray. We pray for the church in all its various forms of expression across the world and the church in which we each find our spiritual home. May all who are members of Christ's body hear again the call to follow and to serve you faithfully wherever you make our hearts go. Renew us by your love that your church may be encouraged and invigorated and inspire us to deeper love for one another and enable us to see where we might work together more effectively as partners in your mission, furthering your purposes. Thanks be to God.